0: From the Spec Network, this is Fragmented, an Android developer podcast where we talk about building good software and becoming better Android developers. I'm Don Felker. And I'm Kaushi Gopal. Welcome to the show. This episode of Fragmented is brought to you by BitRise. BitRise helps you build and operate better apps faster by effortlessly combining the services and tools mobile developers love bitrise makes it easier to develop scale and take away the fear of change that causes development processes to stagnate bitrise makes it easier to release and maintain quality apps by automating workflows featuring the services that developers love to use in 80 percent of cases bitrise fully integrates an initial workflow based on the contents of your repository automatically bitrise integrates with an additional 240 services tools and processes right out of the box now this happens with minimal configuration required so, instead of wasting valuable time on maintaining automation workflows, developers such as yourself can focus on developing and improving your applications. BitRise enables mobile development teams to scale and work efficiently and quickly. Half of mobile unicorn startups use and continue to use BitRise as a scale from small teams to billion dollar enterprises. Onboarding and familiarizing new developers with BitRise doesn't require help from a more veteran developer, and a complete development team is usually onboard in a single release cycle. That's pretty quick. You can grow your business and be confident that you have the right mobile development tooling in place because it will support you from your first to your billionth user. Bitrise also allows you to iterate and improve your mobile development process like you iterate on the actual software that you're developing. You can build custom build bots, tools and integrations that call the Bitrise API over a number of times every single day to enable development processes thought up by the smartest minds in app development. Switching out a step, tool or service in your workflow can be done in minutes through the Bitwise GUI or just a few lines of code in a YAML configuration file. Don't build just better apps, build a better app development process. Big customers also include, which are folks who use the Bitwise app, include Buffer, Mozilla, Travel Lockup, Sixth, along with countless other mobile unicorns, Fortune 500 companies, and top app developers. Now, when you sign up for Bitrise, you will get an exquisite pair of Bitrise branded socks. If you're interested, you can go ahead and go to go.bitrise.io slash fragmented. We're back for round two to talk about some of the common questions that have popped up kind of through social media, email, et cetera, to our fragmented channel, et cetera. Um, And one Mm -hmm. of those things that that had popped up recently that I wanted to discuss with you is something I've been kind of sharing on my social channels, which is basically learning new languages, um, Mm -hmm. which could be anything. If you're not familiar with JavaScript, you could learn JavaScript. If you're not familiar with Swift, you could be that. Uh, For example, I've been playing with a language known as Elixir, which runs on the Erlang VM. So... I want to talk to you and get your opinion about learning new languages. Do you think that that's something that developers should do, even if they're not going to be directly using them? Uh, and if so, and if not, what are your reasons? I mean, this is definitely something I strongly
1: recommend. It isn't just that. Oh yeah, if you learn a language, like, and you know, if you have the time, learn a new language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't remember. Maybe it was Jake, uh, Jake Wharton, on a previous episode, or fragmented, like you know, one of the early ones. Uh, Where he also like I think recommended maybe it was Rust or something right he like recommended that's one of the things that he does like learning a new language just helps you get a better idea of how something works Uh, and in practice too I've definitely found that I know you were talking about Elixir and I'm like really curious to hear what your thoughts are like on Elixir because I've heard good things about Elixir I think it's one of those very important things especially if you have chosen software engineering as one of your, as like your primary career, in order to become just a better programmer, learning a new language is super essential. And we can get into some of the reasons, like one of the biggest reasons I feel is because it just opens up your perspective, right? Like that exposure to a different language Mm -hmm. gives you ideas. Um, And if you think about the Android world, that's like pretty much how a lot of these patterns that have become mainstream today started, right? Uh, for example, RxJava, there's always been functional reactive programming in the past. This is not new. In fact, even RxJava itself was on back in Java, right? It wasn't even meant for uh, being used on Android, but someone who probably worked in a different platform, and I know it's not necessarily a different language, but they worked on a different platform and was like, hey, this might be pretty useful to use in like you know mobile development, so they brought that in, uh, and then even like with Rx, right? It started with Rx Java. I'm pretty sure now JavaScript has adapted some of these patterns. Uh, if you're an iOS developer, Rx Swift is big. I also know like with Rx Swift, a lot of like because Rx Java is pretty well established and matured, they use that as like a benchmark. I was like, hey, they do this this way. Maybe we should like adopt this pattern and like try to work. So I just feel. Your that exposure to different languages helps your brain basically step out of the bubble or like a box. And sometimes that can be really beneficial, right? Like to think about approaching the solution to a problem. Uh, so in terms of like, yeah, learning a new language, I think that's absolutely beneficial. Uh, what are your motivations on like learning a new language? Where do you think learning a new language makes sense? Or why did you even like, yeah, learn a new language?
0: Yeah, that's a good Good question there, and I think to just, before I hop into that, I want to add that Mm -hmm. you talked about Rx and how it has a history with various other, you know, uh, similar vertical areas in programming. I think it's also important to note that, you know, Kotlin wasn't built for Android. Like, that was something that JetBrains built internally, and this is as far as I know. They built internally because they didn't like um, how they were having to use Java, and so, like, they said, hey, let's try to build something on the JVM that fits our needs, and then it kind of came to be what it is today, and now here we are using it basically for all of our development. Um, so it goes to show even people who use Java day-to-day are out there kind of like experimenting, seeing like what's different. And that leads me to what happened with me. It This was probably, 10, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago. Uh, I read a blog post online. I don't remember who it was from, but they basically said, look, you should... Um, you should always try to go out and experiment with other languages to see what you will learn. You'll, you'll grow from it. And mm-hmm. I tried that, and it didn't really work for me. I was like, I don't know what they were talking about. And then I realized that I needed a project to work it on. It could be just a simple to-do ah. app. It mm-hmm. could be actually a, a solve a particular problem. And for me, that's what it is. Is I like to use the right tool for the right job, which is, in my opinion... Um, so, if I'm doing something in academia, I may actually be in Python all the time because that's where a lot of academia is. It's in Python. Um, and then, for example, recently I started learning the Elixir language because I needed to do a bunch of data processing and these weird like pipelines things. And I needed resiliency. And all these things kind of uh, lended themselves very well to Elixir that you're learning VM um, and kind of the distributed nature of it. Uh, and it's very functional. And so, um, what I ended up learning over the course of, I don't know, many languages now is that one of, like, for example, use Kotlin again. When I'm in Kotlin, I'm like, oh, this is a pretty cool, like, little language feature. And just recently, I was in Elixir and I see something. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that looks like it might have been pulled from Elixir, which might have been pulled from somewhere else. Um, and it's used in Kotlin. and I'm just, I don't remember what it was, but it was something where I drew that correlation. And then what, but the amazing thing about this is, I was able to pick up the language faster now because I was like, I already know how that works. Like I know why it's like that because I've used it elsewhere. And the same thing happens in like when I went from like Ruby to other languages to JavaScript, there's certain things that I'm like, oh, I've seen this before. And this is um, I don't know how true this is, but from what I've heard is if, if you know a Latin-based, you know, language, say you know Spanish or or one of those languages, I hear it's much easier to pick up another Latin-based language. So you can learn Italian a lot easier. Or it's very common to be able to understand someone who has another Latin-based language because you can pick out all these familiarities between them very quickly. And I feel that's one of the big benefits that that I've had is I've just been exposed to so many different languages and tried so many different things that I'm like, oh, this language is perfect for this use case and this language is good for this use case and I know how to handle X, Y, and Z. And it basically connects more dots in my head so I can kind of accomplish more uh, and just have a better understanding of the entire landscape of programming.
1: All right. So you basically set off a goldmine topic here. I have like four <laughs> things that I j- jotted down that I need to follow up on okay. right away. So uh, yeah, I'm going to like take over for, for, for like, it, four of these topics. And I want to like follow up on each of these things. So I'm really curious now for uh, to, to listen to what you've uh, said. Uh, so you said Elixir, right? Alex, yeah. uh, can I follow up? Uh, what exactly did you say that it was the benefits? You said data pipeline processing. Like that was uh, well, That's one thing that Elixir is good at?
0: Yeah, I have one of my clients that's we're going to do a bunch of data processing. We come in with a bunch of XML files and a bunch of other files. And I need to take these and transform them into something else. And then it's something else, put them into these databases, move them to these queues. All these different things need to happen. And I could write that in any language. Uh, and I was going to just use JavaScript or whatever. And then I was talking to a friend who does a bunch of data processing. He goes, "He goes, well, what does it need to do? And what about this? And what about this?" And they starts talking about Elixir supervision trees and all these things about how Elixir. Um, and then one of the things that like really sold me on it was just it's very functional. Um, and the one thing he said, this just still blows my mind. He goes, "He goes, he's like, dude, he's like, I don't write error checking at all." He says, "I don't write it." It doesn't exist. Wow. He says, he says, there's a thing in the Erlang and Elixir community that says, let it crash. He says, because there's something known as a supervision tree, which watches a process. There's no like real objects in Elixir. Uh, it's a process. And this basically the supervisor watches it. And if that process dies, it basically says, hey, that one's dead. Let me restart it with an initial state of whatever. And you're kind of chaining these things together in this huge functional manner. And mm-hmm. then the supervision tree will keep track of this stuff. And I'm really going like 50,000 foot level here. And um, he gave me an example. He goes, the thing that sold me on it. He's like, we're. He's like, I was at a, at a company. He says uh, they were had some elixir running. He said, and the guy just went over to like this the switch. He said and he just pulled the cord out of the switch. He said <laughs> like this, like he said this. He goes, he goes, and these transactions were happening. He's like, he just pulled it out. And he goes, and he said, you see these transaction logs just going nuts? Like it's trying to restart these processes, but they keep crashing because it can't get to the network. He goes. But the supervision tree was keeping track of all this. And he goes, so eventually, he just like, after a minute, he just plugs it back in, boom. And then all of a sudden, this queue just like flushes out. And I started That's doing a bonkers. research. Mm. He's, yeah, and like, he's been programming, he's been programming long as I have, uh, in which is close to, you know, 15, 20 years. And he just said one thing to me, he goes, I feel like I've been lied to my entire life about programming. He says, <laughs> when I saw some of these things that I saw over in elixir, lecture, and he goes, He's like, honestly, if you told me I could never program an Elixir again, he's like, I might question my career choice. I was like, hey, You like it wow. that much? And he goes, Yeah. He goes, And I'm not a language zealot because he's used a ton. But it was just one of those weird things for that particular problem set. And him saying, like, I don't write error code and I'm doing a course on Elixir now. And the guy in the course is like, Yeah, just you don't know, whatever, it's not there, just let it crash. I'm just like, This is such a weird paradigm. <laughs> but that's the way it's built now. I was like, well, you know, I'm kind of really going deep here, but I was like, well, why is it that way? And he goes, well, back when Erlang was built, and this is based on shared knowledge here, uh, mm-hmm. it was for a lot of for, for telecom. And telecom is a re, heavily regulated industry. And because of that, telecom would have humongous governmental fines imposed upon them if systems were down. And so they had to build this huge, highly fault tolerant system they can handle random downtime anywhere and recover. And that's kind of where the Erlang VM came out. So you could write Erlang, but Elixir is just another language that runs on top of, of Erlang, compiles down to what's known as beam code. So anyway, it's just really fascinating. And I'm, like, I'm learning a lot about this uh, and seeing how all this works. Uh, and then also like how low memory usage it is. Like it's a lot of stuff is just kind of crazy. So it's been fun for me, but if I didn't have a project to apply this to, like for a particular client, I probably wouldn't be diving down this road. Um, mm. Unless, like, I had a real desire, maybe I heard this content somewhere else, then I might be like, "All right, I'm gonna look at it." You know, and you can write, you know, web apps in it using the Phoenix framework, and things are just a lot different. Uh, it's just a different programming. It's called the actor model, and it's just much different than what you're using in Kotlin or Ruby mm. or JavaScript or anything like that.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I love that. Uh- I mean, I would use it just for the name. <laughs> right, it's <laughs> a cool name. Uh, yeah, but we'll will add a link to the show notes probably for like the language. But I'm, or folks can just Google it. I'm just looking at it. I love that history behind like the fault tolerance and like the stuff that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. That's some pretty cool stuff there.
0: And the, if you look at the, and if you look at the language, I mean, you you can look at the language. You used to be a Rails developer, mm-hmm. and the language was created by Jose Valim. Do you, you remember him?
1: Oh, wait a second. Yeah. Yeah, Why does that sound familiar?
0: He created a device. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, wow. The gem. Yeah. So the authentication gem device he created, he was one of the guys for that. And I think he was even a Rails core contributor at one point. And so he went off on this thing and created Elixir. So if you look at Elixir, it looks just like almost exactly like Ruby code. It's super easy to pick up.
1: That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I was going to ask, oh, is, does it run on the JVM or does it run something else? But like, yeah, it's the Erlang VM, yeah, right? Erlang VM, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, that's, wow, that's super cool. Like, I'm very curious about it. I've heard about Elixir mostly because I think it was around the functional programming when I was like really into the whole fun- functional programming yeah. uh, platform. I mean, I know they talk about Elixir as being like one of those pioneers of how well it
0: does it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, and to tell you the truth, after diving more into it and learning more about it through Elixir, a lot of the conversations we had with the Arrow folks here on the show made mm-hmm. a lot more sense. I'm like, oh, I know why they're using that construct in Arrow. And, oh, I understand understand it now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just they're trying to make Kotlin as functional functional as possible.
1: That segues well into the other thing you mentioned, right? Like you said, because I was going to ask the next sort of uh topic here is like how does one learn a new language and you mentioned like with use cases right you said you probably never would have learned elixir and unless you had like this use case of this project to work on mm-hmm. uh, i like that is that typically how you like work with like learn most
0: new languages yeah i have to have some use case to apply it to it's too hard for me to say um hey don you should go learn r like i don't know why i need to learn r um <laughs> like if it's or you need to go use rust. Like for what? What do I need rust for? Why is it better than what? And that's sometimes what you'll run into is like people are like, well, should I go learn Go or should I learn Rust? Or should I learn Elixir? Or mm-hmm, what should I use it for? And that's kind of I'll kind of if I'm in that situation, I'll go looking for answers and I'll kind mm-hmm. of just dive around and say, what is this used for? Why should I be interested in this? Now it's kind of I'll be honest, I've kind of stumbled upon a lot of it. But when I do find a use case, that's when I'm like, all right, now I'm going to uh, either have some type of online resource I can lean into and ask questions. It could be Stack Overflow or or Reddit or whatever. Um, But then I need to have that project where I can actually apply this thing and actually get it done. Um, And it could be just a simple project myself, or it could be something where I'm building like a larger system.
1: yeah, I, I love that answer. And that's typically also because I have a lot of folks, uh, family, friends, a lot of them know that I'm a programmer. So they are like, hey, I'm thinking about learning this, like, you know, which course should I go to or like, what language should I pick up? Should I pick up this? And it's a hard answer. The one that I've found that works the best is the same thing. And I think actually, even you mentioned this like quite some time back, right? Like, just have a use case, like unless you have a use case, it's really hard to motivate yourself to learn this thing, right? It is, yes. Uh, and, and we'll we'll draw into that whole thing about like, you know, how this relates to like general languages. Like you mentioned the thing about Latin and stuff. It's mm-hmm. the same thing, right? Unless, and I'm sure many folks have found this, unless you have someone to converse in, it's really hard to like remember or like, you know, keep a language going, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the Middle East and at one point I used to be able to speak Arabic uh, somewhat semi like fluently. And these days I have just like, I can still like, read and write Arabic, which is like a very different thing. But uh, I, I've i just lost touch, right? Because I don't have anyone to like constantly converse in, right? Yeah. Uh, a lot of other like languages that I know, like from India, like I don't converse as much in those languages. And you notice that it slowly starts to, it's more like a, yeah, you wanna, I'm, I'm drawing the analogy here where like, if you wanna get better at it, like you need a use case, right, like that's how you learn the language even better. Practice, like it's yeah. usage, yeah, you gotta practice, right? For me, in terms of use cases, uh, I remember like in the, my very first, the very first programming language that I kind of learned was, I mean, I don't know if you can even call it a programming language, right? But HTML and CSS was what I learned. It was like in the early days where I was like, oh, wow. So like this whole internet thing, I can actually build my own thing. Like I can like, I, I used to look at some websites and I was like, oh, that looks really... I, I wonder if I could just change it a little. I could tweak it a little, right? And then that's how I got into the world of CSS. And yeah, crazy fun fact, I actually wrote like in a CSS framework in SaaS at the time. Oh, wow. It, you know? uh, so yeah, I've dealt a lot with like... And in the early days, I thought of myself purely as just like a web sort of, uh, you know, a, a front-end web developer where I would just like... Chain CSS and then like HTML. Then I, the whole HTML5 revolution happened. Yeah. And then like we started to move into jQuery. And then I was like, wow, this like unlocks a whole bunch of things. And then obviously, like I, like formally when I started working, it was in like the like in Java land, but it was still like web development. And so, you know, and after that, of course, like as Don mentioned, like the Ruby on Rails thing happened. Uh, yeah. So it's crazy to like track that. Like I've jumped around the place, but in all these things, I found that the, I've always learned the best when I've had something I wanted to do, right? Even yep. things like shell scripting, right? Uh, I I have like a crazy ton of like shell scripts and stuff. I wouldn't have like learned how to use that just because I wanted to learn how to use shell scripting. Like, there's no way in hell like yeah. that. The, it is not pleasant, right? Like shell scripting is not like pleasant. But I've picked up a lot of these tools like, uh, AARC, awk, AWK, yep. you know, uh, grep, like you know, I've 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 actually learned Vim a lot. Like in like, then we can talk about that too in another episode. But all of that is just always driven from a use case, right? And I feel that I will motivate myself and I'll I, and I'll be excited about learning this stuff only when I have a use case, right? Uh, if you want to learn how to do something, learn how to build like a web page or something, right? Uh, just learning a language in itself can be done. I'm not saying like, and different people learn differently, but. I think the use case one is just so powerful,
0: right? Yeah. If you find, like, for example, you said Vim, like, go find a DevOps person who doesn't know Vim, like, or at least can't navigate it pretty efficiently. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they know Vim is because VI or Vim is installed on every server they log into by default. Right. And so right, right. when they're in that server, they need to edit a file. What are they going to do? They're going to reach for the easily accessible tool that has the power that they need. And so they're just going to learn it. That's their use case. Like, they're forced to say, I have this, I'm not going to install this text editor on every single machine, right. which you could do, but it's just easier for them to just adapt to the environment. So all right, well, I'm just going to learn Vim. And off they go and they learn Vim. I mean, that's not a programming language, but it's a tool. And it's the same concept. And the same thing for shell scripting. They probably know how to do an insane amount in the shell script because that's where they spend a lot of their time and that's their use case.
1: Right. Yeah. It's the use case driven learning, I think, is one of the most effective ways, right? And I think, uh, there are like, and I think there's also like the fear that is like, oh, but maybe I won't like know how like all the different nuances of using a language. It doesn't matter, <laughs> honestly. Like you know, uh, and I, I think even with Kotlin these days and a lot of the languages I've learned, uh, I probably know like maybe just like forty to fifty percent of like what the language is capable of, right? Oh, totally. And you can still be pretty effective with that, right? You don't need to know every single bit of it, especially when you're learning. When you're learning. The idea is just to be open and pick up these concepts.
0: And I think that's the the key here is that, you know, ignorance is key. It's bliss because <laughs> you just start off building something. Imagine that first time you built an Android app. Like you think back on it, like, oh my goodness, that was horrendous. But at the time it was fun and you were developing something and you were learning and you'll notice that you probably fell into a state of flow very quickly Oh yeah, because you got to that that there's that. I don't know where I read this, but it was like the state of flow is the, the point in which your ability meets the challenges, and you're right at that level of like, hey, this is I don't this is well beyond my realm of knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, and that kind of meets your your knowledge. So it's right at that level where they kind of connect. We're like, I don't know this, but I know enough to figure it out. That's when you start to enter that flow state, and anytime you start learning something new and applying it to a project and having fun with it. You'll find that the hours just melt away, and usually that's a good case you're you're on the right path,
1: yeah, absolutely, I one hundred percent second that uh and the last one is where I'm gonna like throw a wrench into all of this stuff <laughs> and as like, usual okay. <laughs> uh the' recently I picked up a different language, and uh this is basically the language of the dark side <laughs> swift, yeah yeah, indeed. <laughs> and it's, it was the same thing so like the background is a lot of like the whole unidirectional state flow thing that I've been working on mm-hmm. i've been wanting to get like both our ios and android teams to conceptually work in a similar pattern and i've always like theoretically felt very strongly that the pattern is a solid pattern that would like it doesn't have to be linked to any specific language right like that's the beauty of it it isn't yeah. it isn't something that is very specific to kotlin or java or android uh, and it's proven to be very like you know you can test pretty fast like you can test very stably debugging is easy it's just in my mind i feel like it's a solid pattern that we can work off and like the background is if we can get our teams like typically like at least at instacart we have like a self-sufficient team where we have an ios engineer an android engineer a designer a pm a data scientist and like the whole shebang if we can get that team working more closely like to a point where like the The iOS and Android engineers are like, you know, feeding off of each other. They're like, hey, did you cover this use case? Like, I'm doing this, I'm doing it this way. And more importantly, if someone comes and like finishes a feature on one platform, we shouldn't have like another engineer come in and then like rethink the whole thing, go through the whole process altogether. Because for the most part, both Android and iOS, like, pretty similar, right? So that's Mm -hmm. like the whole background. What I did was I wanted to prove that this actually worked, right? Like this whole pattern can be adapted. And theory only goes so far because at a certain point, like even for the iOS engineers, that's a two-way jump, right? Like A, the first cognitive jump is like understanding Kotlin and the second is like actually understanding this pattern, right? Exactly. So I tried to think, I was like, okay, let me make it a little easier because I understand the pattern well, but I don't know Swift. So let me learn Swift. Uh, And I actually built a feature in iOS, right? And it was like, oh, it was like a lot of fun and maybe in another episode we can talk about the specifics cuz I think some folks might be very interested to know how iOS and Android is similar or different and you know between Swift and Kotlin. But the reason I bring it up is I felt the other point you mentioned, you mentioned another point where you can think about adapting patterns that you see in one in another. And I noticed like that I found myself doing that too, right? Uh, Swift has this thing about guard clauses which is like a stable mm-hmm. that's built into the language. And I love using guard clauses. I found that like just reading code when you have guard clauses is just so much nicer. Uh, and we can get into the details later. And I said, but I started to think, well, Kotlin. There's no reason you can't have that in Kotlin. Kotlin is extensible enough. Where you can yeah. come up with similar patterns, right? Obviously, like Kotlin has like some of like the. You can emulate this by. Using things like the Elvis operator and like other stuff, but it doesn't read as well as like the guard clause. And so this is again one of those examples where I found that as I work in my Android code again uh, these days, I'm thinking about oh that was really useful in that pattern. Like you know in Swift they have this thing and it reads really well. So maybe I should use that right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it worked the other way too. Like in uh, for example sealed classes, like the copy function is so nice to have. <laughs> That when I was working in Swift, uh, they have like enums and they have structs, and I'm like, you know what? I want to just, I want to keep the immutable aspect, but I want to create a copy of this object, and it's not that easy to do with data classes. It's super easy because we have uh, the copy function. Uh They didn't have that, but then it wasn't too difficult to like sort of add that as an extension. So I added that to that object, and I found that the code in Swift again read so much better. Right, so it works both ways, and. This is like one of those benefits where like you can adapt patterns from different languages, and you know eventually I think like and people should be like fearless to like go again. Now you shouldn't like always limit yourself to like oh this is how we do it in this way. So that's why it is you should like truly keep an open mind to seeing what reads better and what works better. And I'm, I love that aspect of it, basically where you can adapt concepts and patterns from different languages and use that to like better how your existing uh program works you know
0: yeah exactly i mean it's, you can take those all those concepts and practices and apply them to anywhere in your software engineering career which is which is a real benefit here
1: mm-hmm. uh yeah so that's pretty much like all i had but uh, it's super curious like learning new languages i think is uh one of those things that i think every programmer eventually should like you shouldn't be locked into Uh, a single platform, right? Because I feel in many ways you you feel, and this is like more a meta point, if you're so comfortable with just a language and I'm thinking like maybe, you know, all my life I was a Java developer and I've only worked with Java and nothing else, there might almost be a fear of like irrelevance, right? At one point, because you might keep working in java land and then one fine day maybe you know what java is like no longer a thing or they're not hiring java developers or like you know android is pure kotlin and there's Mm -hmm. no java it can almost bring a shock factor right because you're like oh my god this is the only thing i know and i don't know anything else and like how am i going to adapt right and maybe you might adapt and you know because if like you know as they say when when shit hits the roof you find a way to sort of adapt Uh, but you can make that process much easier and in, in fact like and maybe you can speak to this better, right? By learning new languages, you open up more opportunities and you can maybe, you know, you want to go out strong, right? Like you're like, hey, I understand I've done this thing pretty well, but I want to like explore this other new field altogether because I just find that much more exciting and I think I might benefit more. Learning a new language allows you to do that, right? It gives you that freedom to sort of explore a different world.
0: Your opportunities will just grow exponentially, um, I've shared this a number of times but for for new listeners that don't know this like um, I was never a Java developer before Android in mm-hmm. fact I couldn't stand the language um, <laughs> and so when Android came around I just wanted to create an app on the Android device, I thought the device was cool and Java was just the tool to get it done and so I said well I kind of know some Java from college and I just cracked open you know the documentation and some sample apps and just started creating an app and I got well versed in it pretty quickly because at the time in 2009, there was not really any Android developers. And then I thought it was kind of cool that you could create a, an app that would run on a phone that you could carry in your pocket. And I just started talking about it at local conferences. Um, and now, what, fast forward 10 years later, here we are on this podcast and I'm still doing Android mm-hmm. and it's opened up many doors. And this is the same thing that's happened at various different companies I've worked for. We, When I originally started in tech, I was working as a Unix dialer technician running, uh, creating that, yeah. shell scripts um, to with Perl to you know basically parse CSV files to to load uh, automated dialing systems. And we needed a way to get reports um, to the managers about how their call center reps were doing. Uh, I found ASP, classic ASP at the time, said, hey, I can connect to this database. It's a SQL database. I figured out how to read records from it and I created a table, an HTML table and created them a report. In the end, what did I do? I ended up learning ASP. That opened a door to go work for a toy company and, be, and create their e-commerce platform. And it's just this natural thing where you eventually kind of start expanding your horizons and your opportunities just kind of open up. Doors just randomly open up that weren't there before because you'll have that conversation with someone that says, hey, I'm looking for a you know a Go developer because we have X, Y, and Z. You're like, oh, you know what? I built something in Go six months ago. Here's what it did. Like, oh, cool. Can I talk to you about it? And before you know it, there's this amazing opportunity that wasn't there before.
1: I love that. Yeah. I mean, I love that you also traced it in your own experience, how, (laughs) you know, your career, like you've moved past that. Um, So I guess that's pretty much it uh, with this topic. Anything else you wanted to add? You highly recommend learning a new language. Thumbs up for that.
0: Totally man. I'm 100% for it. Uh, I recommend that everyone try at least uh, one new language a year. Some people say, "Well, you should focus on one and be specialized." Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm more of a generalist. I like to use the right tool for the right job. I understand that that's not for everybody, but if it does something, if it does sound like something that interests you, then definitely try to learn as much as you can um, when you can. What about you? Do you feel that's uh, important? Oh, absolutely.
1: Uh, if anything, I feel like just like the experience of having like worked in a different language. I found it uh, I found re I found it very invigorating, right? And the thing is, I was probably like at twenty percent efficiency compared to like you know languages that I'm more familiar with, like uh-huh. uh, obviously like with Kotlin or uh, you know Ruby. But I found that I was actually more excited for mm-hmm. some strange reason because it was like learning, right? Um, I was as I was working with these things, I was like, oh, I would have done this this way in Kotlin. I'm sure there's something Swift that does this, and so then I find myself like stack overflowing like you know googling and then realizing that oh you can do this or like there's like ways to do it even better Mm -hmm. Uh, and i just found that process so refreshing it was a lot of fun even though i was not as like i was not at peak efficiency levels it was just so much more fun to sort of like push myself out of my comfort zone and learn these things and eventually i got to a point where i was like familiar enough and i started to see that i was getting better at it you know uh and also if you have people around you, especially people who are more familiar with the language, then that's an even better opportunity, right? Because you can exactly. learn off their experience. So that's another very powerful technique. Like if if you have like, you know, someone who's, if you have a colleague who's like very familiar with Go or like Swift or like some other language, it's it's really like nice because you can beat, beat your head uh, only so much. And at a certain point you can just like, hey, tap them on the shoulder and like, what about this? Like, how do you folks like usually handle this kind of stuff? And then like that just opens it up and it broadens the conversation and, you know, it's a, it's, it's a really nice place to be in. So highly recommend it. Definitely. Alrighty. That's it for this episode. Uh, If folks want to find out some of the new languages that you're going to be picking up over
0: time, Don was a good place to do that. They can reach me on Twitter or Instagram at the same handle. That's at Don Felker. Or, of course, you can reach us on the Twitter handle for Fragmented Cast, which is just at Fragmented Cast. And if folks want to see kind of what you're delving into in regards to languages, where can they find you, Kaushik? Uh,
1: Kaushik Gopal is my Twitter handle. It's also my Instagram handle. And that's like the best place to reach me. Or you can contact us again at Fragmented Cast, the Twitter handle, or contact at fragmented.com, our email address. Mm hmm. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will catch you in this next episode.
0: Once again, we'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, Bitrise. With Bitrise, you can build amazing apps in Java, Kotlin, or whatever tech you prefer, and use Bitrise to automate your Android integration, build, test, and deploy processes quickly and easily. Sign up for an exquisite pair of Bitrise branded socks by going to go.bitrise.io slash fragmented. Again, that's go.bitrise.io slash fragmented. Thanks again, Bitrise.
1: That's it for the show, folks. Fragmented is hosted by Don Felker and me, Kaushik Gopal. We edit and produce all the episodes here on Fragmented. Fragmented. Sarah the Amazing Jackson from The Spec Network helps with production assistance and wraps our final mix. Our theme and ad music is by the national recording artist Blueprint from Waitless Recordings. You can find more Fragmented episodes at fragmentedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and we will catch you in the next episode.